This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about all the signs, and I have a feeling there's a bunch of them, that show up and tell us or tell you or tell me that you have a debt problem. So mm-hmm. let's go through them. Um, l- warning signs, I guess, is probably even the better way to describe them, Blair. Yeah. So there's definitely some of these, Elaine, that, you know, they're like, you know, a, a truck hitting you right down the street, a Mack truck. You'll know when this happens. Right. Where other of them are a little bit more subtle. You know, yes. maybe you've got a problem, but you need to look a little bit closely. So let's look at some really, some of the clear signs that, you know, this hits you right in the face. So first off, a wage garnishment. So what this means is in the province of BC, if you have a debt that you don't pay, creditors can sue you. And once they sue you, you know, it's not a criminal matter. You'll never go to court for owing money here. Um, But once they sue you, they get the power to go to your employer and seize up to 30 to 50% of your wages before they're ever paid to you. That's a lot. Huge. And and that would be the sort of the principle of your wage, right? That doesn't include the the uh, deductions that you have. So mm-hmm. you're t- that's off the main bulk of it. Oh, yeah. Your, There's your, your gross wage and, you know, CPP, EI yeah. taxes. And then you would see garnishment or court action oh. or something like that. Um, again, if it's, a, it's a, you know, a non-government debt, they've got to sue you first. You have a little bit of notice that it's going to happen. But if it's a government debt for income taxes or student loans, for example, you may have very little advance notice until suddenly your employer says, hey, I received this garnishee notice and I've got to comply with it. And therefore, your wages are going to be a lot smaller going forward. The tough thing with the garnishee is it's going to stay on until either you pay the debt off, you negotiate with them to get it removed, which is usually why would they remove it? They're getting their money every every week or every month. Um, or you sit down with a trustee and you file either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Both of those remedies stop garnishes dead in their tracks. So that's a really important thing to remember. What are the other uh, big red flags that we would get? Yeah. So along with seizing your wages, seizing assets is another thing that creditors can do once they've sued you. So they can go, if you've got money in a bank account, they can seize that bank account. More often, if you've got property where you know, it's not completely mortgaged, or maybe even if it is, um, your creditors can sue you and then register on title to your property. So that means that when the house is sold, they're entitled to get paid out. They're now another mortgage. Before you see a dollar from your house being sold, that creditor is going to have to get paid. Now, do, would I know if, if, my, uh, if a creditor has gone to my bank? Like, would my, does my bank under, under um, uh, is it fair for them to tell me or do they have to tell me or? Well, they, they tell you after the fact. After the fact. Oh, yeah. They don't tell you in advance, you know, because again, it's a, it's a sure. legal notice. They get it. They've got to comply with it. Got it. And then typically I've had clients say, yeah, and then the bank manager called me and told me what happened. And got it. Okay. So there's no advance notice. It's, which makes sense because otherwise I just take the money out of the account. But, well, and, yeah. and you know, you're, you're not completely wrong there because right. if someone comes in and, and we see them and they say, okay, you've just been sued, but they haven't seized anything yet, then I would be saying, okay, you probably don't want to have money in the bank as of now because that's going to be gone. So okay. while you try to figure things out, you know, maybe you need a different bank account or just do something to protect your assets because after you've been sued, it's either income through your wages or it's assets through money in the bank or your house or things like that that, that potentially become at risk. Okay. 
What are the other red flags? I know we got a couple more. Yeah, well, a couple things, you know, collection calls or collection letters. Um, you know, obviously when you stop paying people, they start to get collectors involved. If you're getting multiple collection calls in a day from multiple different organizations, usually a pretty big warning sign that, you know, these folks want you to do something that you're just not able to do. Nobody enjoys these calls, so you'd put an end to them if you could pay. You can't, and that's why they're calling you. And they are relentless. Absolutely. Quite often what happens is that the collection agents, and some of them are our clients as well, they're not well paid and often not well trained, but often they're paid on commission. And you can imagine if you've got someone who's not making a whole lot of money, who's not that well trained, they will often say just about anything, whether it's legal, true or not, to try to get some payments out because they make a commission that way. So it's a very distasteful model. It doesn't speak to, you know, ethics or or things like that in a very high way. Right. It's about getting the money and getting it any way they can. And uh, what's what's the last one? Or no, there's a couple more. Yeah. Well, you know, a couple other things is, you know, just the threats of the things that we've talked about. So, you know, quite often before you're sued, you'll receive, you know, umpteen numbers of notices saying draft statement of claim, or we will sue you unless you act, you know, take some action. So don't ignore that stuff. That's usually telling you, hey, some more action is coming down the pike here to be aware of. Um, You know, quite often a very simple one is just, are you bouncing payments? You know, Mm. you know, we tend to use a lot fewer checks than we used to, but you know, if suddenly, you know, if you're taking money from an account where you know it's not going to be to be there to cover it and the check's going to bounce and that's happening on a regular basis, or even if you're just into your overdraft all the time, it's again, it's a bit of a warning sign that, you know, perhaps you're, you're not managing the burden that you've got in a way that's going to get you out of debt. And I know, uh, I know that others would fall into this category as well, but the idea that things will just kind of take care of themselves, I, mm-hmm. I think I'd be one of those people, and, yeah. and that's not necessarily the, the best, the best uh, uh, action to take. No, and the great thing, as I've said many times with debt problems, is they can all be solved but none of them solve themselves. Mm. You know, it's not going to get better on its own. You need to actually take some steps to get some help to, to move forward. But, you know, there is a happy ending at the end of the day. You can get out of debt, but if you do nothing, all you'll get is more collection calls, perhaps more threats of lawsuits, and then eventually wage seizures or asset seizures. And, we, and we've talked about this in other segments as well. The stress level that comes along with it is just, it's just crazy. Yeah. And it's usually for most people, it's around two years. So it's two years from when they know they've gotten some of these, you know, big warning signs to when they walk through the door of a trustee's office. And usually they walk out the door with a big exhale saying, you know, why didn't I come sooner? Why didn't I make myself aware of what's available to me? This is Canadian law. The government put it there for people to use, but the challenge is people don't know about it until, you know, they're facing the situation and quite often they flail about for two years. And one thing I say when I, when I introduce you and introduce the show, we talk about that free consultation. And it, it literally is a free consultation. Mm-hmm. So if any of these I, things sort of ring a little bell in your head, go, hmm, I think, yeah, that, I, that sort of pertains to me a little bit. The free consultation is just such a, a great way to to see if, if you're at that stage yet that mm-hmm. you really need to take action. Yeah, it's free and it's confidential. You know, if someone's really concerned, I'll say, I'm going to take notes just so I know what we've talked about, but you can take your note, my notes with you. I, I don't mind, okay? Yeah. This is about you figuring out your options, figuring out what's the best for you to try to move forward. I've never met with anybody who knew exactly everything I was going to say. Sure. You know, and almost everybody learns at least something about credit rebuilding, but quite often they learn that they've got options. They learn that they can actually flip the power dynamic here and not be the person being yelled at by the collection agents. They can be the person that says, hey, I could have went bankrupt and you guys might have gotten very little. Here's a proposal. Here's something honorable that I can pay back that's a reasonable compromise. Here's what I can do. So it's when they start working with the trustee, suddenly they put themselves back in the driver's seat. Right. 
what other kinds of things might compound those problems? I mean, those problems sound worse enough, but there yeah. are things that can make them worse. Oh, definitely. There, there's a way to enlarge just about any problem, and there are some <laughs> things you, you can do to make your debt problem worse. Um, an easy one is by getting a cosigner. So mm-hmm. if you said, hey, I've got all this debt right now, let's, you know, put mom, dad, or brother or sister, you know, also on the hook here so that they'll give me better payment terms. All you've done now is make your debt problem someone else's debt problem. Because if somebody co-signs, they're on the hook for 100% of the difference, sorry, 100% of what the debt is. And if you end up having to file a bankruptcy or a proposal and you end up writing the debts off, you know, maybe you pay back a third of it. If you've gotten a co-signer, that person's going to have to pay back the balance. So you've just removed the whole benefit of you doing a proposal by enlarging, giving them another pocket to dig into. So a cosigner is almost always a bad idea. Even if the cosigner, because you know that there's people in in our our circle that would just go bend over backwards to give you a hand. Mm-hmm. Everybody has them, but it's it's almost like the worst thing that you can do. Right. Yeah. The better thing to do if someone wants to give you a hand is help you to meet with a trustee, help you to make a consumer proposal. And if you have trouble with the payments on the proposal, that's the time to help you, help you with the debt repayment plan. Don't help you give 100% of the debt back to the creditors where they'd have no other way of getting that money back unless you were the co-signer. That's a really good point that you could actually, if you really wanted to help somebody, help in that debt repayment. Exactly. Help them pay off the proposal sooner, rebuild their credit, whatever you choose to do. Definitely help them pay off the 30%, not pay off the 100%. You know, again, if eyes wide open, you choose to do so for a moral obligation, that's fine, but just make sure the eyes are wide open. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I just love to throw in, it's such an important piece that people don't think about, uh, is when you think, oh, I'm just going to just sort of cash in my RRSPs and and do and help and help that way. And you don't have to with a consumer proposal. Yeah, absolutely. Even with the bankruptcy, Elaine, even if you said, hey, I have way more debt, I can't even afford to do a consumer proposal, you will keep dollar for dollar what's in your RRSPs when you started the bankruptcy. The only carve out is if you've made contributions in the 12 months before you filed a bankruptcy or a proposal, that money is potentially at risk, but that makes sense. You know, if a year before bankruptcy, you're putting $40,000 into your RRSPs, RSPs and you owed $40,000 when you went bankrupt, probably the right answer was to pay off the debt instead of the RRSPs. Got it. But for the vast majority of people, that RRSP is going to be safe. You'll come through still with your retirement intact. So it's a huge mistake to start cashing in RRSPs to pay off your debts. Okay. And as we sort of wrap up this segment, um, are there some subtle financial warning signs that we could be aware of? Well, a real good one that I like is just looking at your statements each month, looking at the minimum payments, and then sometimes you've got to scour, but it is there because it has to be there by law, is the notation that says, if you make only the minimum payments, here's how long it's going to take you to pay off those debts. And that's a new rule for credit yeah. card companies. Yeah, just in the last few years. Yeah. And so I see people coming through my door 150 years, 160 years, even if it's showing you 20 or 30 years, that's important because quite often people realize, hey, all I'm paying is the minimum. So much of that is just going to interest. The principal is going down so minutely every month. I'm really just treading water and even drowning a little bit. So look closely at the statements, know of what you're paying, how much is reducing the principal and how much is going to interest and really see if you're going to get out of debt doing what you're doing. It's almost a laughable thing for a credit card company. I know that they have to state that, how long it would take. But really, I mean, it's just absurd, 150 years, right? Oh, yeah, it it would never happen. (laughs) Right, no, of course not. But I mean, like, that, that, that they even think that that's okay to put, you know, like, it just seems... 
It's uh, oh, heartless, <laughs> heartless. I say. Okay, other subtle uh, warning signs that we could be uh, we could be aware of. Well, a, a regular one that that we see is just you know either living without a budget or if you've got a budget, every single month it's overspent. So if you find that there's some gap between you know your income each month and you know there's more month left than money at the end at the end of the month there, your money's just not lasting. Really take a hard look at the budget. If you're overspending just because of all the debt payments, okay, we we can help with that. Um, but if you're overspending just from a structural thing that your your you know rent is too high or groceries are too high, it could be a tougher decision you need to make. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. With us right now is Shannon. Uh, and a, it's a very special uh, piece that we're going to share with you with Shannon, her story. Uh, she was uh, able to successfully achieve a financial fresh, fresh start uh, going through bankruptcy. Uh, Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to just share my story. And hopefully, you know, there's somebody out there who's listening who, who can see a little bit of, of themselves and, and just hear my story today and just make a change and, and, and go for it. That's what I want to do is just help somebody out there. Oh, that, that's great, Jen. And, and again, we thank you for being courageous to do so. And I, I'm sure yeah. folks folks that are listening, um, you know, if it's not their situation, it's someone in their life is, is facing a debt challenge and any insight is going to be helpful. Exactly. Uh, so I wonder just from a background point of view, can you tell us about the situation that led to you having to file a personal bankruptcy? Sure. It was actually a specific um, series of events that led to to kind of a, a buildup of debt quickly in my life. Um, I, I, I was 27. I had, um, I had a divorce that started the kind of buildup. Um, I kind of had to start from scratch, literally from scratch. So, you know, I had to head out on my own, buy everything that I needed. Um, it was followed about eight months later by a major health crisis. Mm. I had organ failure, needed to have a transplant. Wow. And, um, and I was also self-employed at the time. So, you don't think at 27 it's going to happen to you, and that's a big thing. I was self-employed, and I didn't have insurance. So right. I ended up being um, going through a major health crisis, living on my credit line. I didn't want to reach out for help, and I had a lot of people offer help, but instead I I, I lived on a credit line for you know the pre-sickness and, and then the, the recovery. So it was about, about a year that I, because I was self-employed, didn't have health insurance, I built debt debt built up for about you know a few months before my surgery and then afterwards I also you know didn't work for about almost a good year so that Mm. was all on a credit line and um so so Shannon you you were obviously quite ill and you know medical care is one of the the great parts of living in Canada but it sounds like without without this credit line you would have had probably zero income coming in if you were self-employed without disability exactly Mm -hmm. and that coupled with the divorce that happened just before where I had to literally start from, you know, buying forks, knives, bedding. I had to build everything, um, you know, build up furniture, furnishings. Um, I had to restart my life. So that and followed eight, seven months later by the the illness. Uh, it just, it was a very quick series of events that built debt up very quickly. Um, uh, so it was, it kind of all snowballed. And 
I was doing well financially, so I'm like, no problem. It'll it'll be very, it'll be building up quickly. But I I got this. I can do this. Like you just figure you'll get back to well. work. You'll clear the debt eventually. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I I I made good money, so I wasn't I wasn't afraid. I was selling real estate at the time. I was not worried at all, and mm-hmm. I'd always done well for myself. I had perfect credit, R1 credit. Um, I was making good money, and you know, I I I wasn't worried. I wasn't yeah. worried. But what happened is there was another hit that came, which was the the recession. So mm. real estate recession, things kind of hit there as well, and nobody was buying houses. So this was a few years ago, but um, that was the final kick. And I, you know, I was I got my life back, I got my house back, but I literally could not. My my career was ending. Like there was. We, we, nobody was purchasing homes. We, there was nothing I could do. It was just the, my career was ending. Um, and I was in a, uh, I wasn't living here. I was living in a different town at the time. And it was literally, um, my career was basically ending and there was not much I could do about it. So I, I tried for about two years to get out of that hole and I did ev- literally everything I could. I was, working. I was delivering phone books. I was doing little jobs on the side. I was doing absolutely everything I could think of to make my mortgage payments. I had real estate investments. I had two homes. I had um, payments. I was doing everything I could think of to get out of this hole. I was doing everything and it was starting to show up in my health. And this is where I really want to reach out to those people who are in that hole right now. I want you to listen to me. You know that that financial stress, it affects your health. It was affecting my health to the point where it was showing up in my blood work. My, my, my health was starting to decline very rapidly. So it was affecting my health to, to the point where my doctors were getting concerned. And, and I, you know, I was literally not, physically capable of working to the extent that I needed to, to pay my bills. Um, and I, I just was like, what do I do? I was, I, I was losing sleep at night and I tried for two years to get out of that hole. Um, and then, and, ha- and then Shannon, how long did it, what was the period of time when you, when you realized that you weren't, you, this was it, you were not going to yeah. be able to get yourself out of that. Two years. It was two, two years. years. Two years from when it started snowballing. And I'm like, no, I got this. And, I, you know, I was proactive from the start. I I still had been, I was very proactive. I'd let the creditors know what was happening. I returned a lease voluntarily when I'm like, okay, i got to start unloading stuff. I've got to lower my debt load. And I, um, I felt sick about the idea of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. This is going to, you know, a lot of people are going to understand that. The quitting factor. But when it comes to that point where you, your health, and for me, it was literally getting to the point where, you know, I've been given the gift of life. I did not want to put that at risk. That was, that was it. But, you know, when your life, when your health is at risk, you've really got to, and it's, you know, it comes down to your pride. A lot of people can relate to that. You don't want to quit. You don't want to quit. You don't want to give up. You don't want to feel like that. It was, it's ego. It really comes down to, to that, but I finally went, I reached out and I met with somebody and, you know, you don't want to feel like a quitter, but there are these, these systems are, are here for a reason. And I finally reached out. And when I finally did, I, 
I understood that there's these systems are there for us for a reason. And when I finally reached out and met with a trustee with Sands and Associates, I just it all came off my shoulders. It was it was so easy and I understood I finally understood the process and they literally they took over and they did everything. And you know, I was very proactive and I didn't have you know, the creditors chasing me, I was very proactive, but I understand how hard it is to get to that point. But um, at this point, when once they did take over, I never had another, the, it all goes to them. Right. Nobody can legally call you after that. So that's what I really want people to understand is it's done. The second you reach out to somebody and you have a trustee, they legally cannot call you. People yeah, Jenna, cannot call you. You're you're saying things so, so perfectly. Um, I just yeah, to, yeah just to put a, a fine point this, on it. And as as you mentioned, you know, this is the law, right? You know, the, the government legal. the government yeah. created this law, and the actual wording for it is someone that's been honest but unfortunate. And the story that you you've recalled recounted to us here that that's you, right? You know, you yeah. you were honest the whole time. You had a series of unfortunate events, and isn't it great that Parliament created this law to get us, you know, a fresh start to get you back on track? It's a law. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. And, you know, what I've learned from this is that I, I mean, you do go through a process. You have to, you know, you got to do some, there is a process to it. Um, what I've learned from it, and I kind of did this anyways, but what I've learned is I've now, I, I have had a fresh start. Um, I've sold my, my homes, everything was sold. Um, and there's a whole process with that. I'm not going to get into it, but I now do everything, you know, I base everything on cash. That's my choice. However, I do want everybody to know that I'm two years post-bankruptcy. I own a home. I have a mortgage. I have a credit card. I am wow. back to R1 credit. Mm-hmm. I just did a, a Equifax. I pulled my credit. I'm back in the 700s. Wow. So I have a credit card from a legit credit card. I have a mortgage. I am back up there. Like There's yep. things you can do to rebuild your credit very quickly. There's little tricks you can do. You just need to be educated, proactive, and you can get there. You just need to reach out and do that. Um, and, and Shannon, know, that, that's just great insight because yes, to a person, everyone that comes in the door, they're so worried about their credit rating. Scared. And, you know, it. off the top, they think bankruptcy takes seven years, which it doesn't. It, does. it, it takes, you know, know, nine months or 21 months. And most people rebuild their credit two or three years after. So you're exactly proving, um, you know, the, the day-to-day reality. But most people have a conception that it's going to be so much worse and so much, you know, with a legacy yeah. of impact than is actually the case. And this is why I want to be on the radio today and reach out to everybody out there whose spouses or whose friends, if you know somebody, just explain what you're hearing today. It's not like that anymore. There's things you can do. You just need to make the call, go have a meeting, learn about it, educate yourself. It's very different. You just need to just, there's a couple points I want to make. You're not being a quitter. There's, there's, there's a reason they have this process. Shit, pardon, sorry, I can't say that. Um, (laughs) Things happen, things happen in life. And what I want to say, there's systems in place for a reason. We are human, we make mistakes. The thing is, just learn from it. Don't do this again. Things, as long as you can learn through this process and don't repeat it, it's okay. You can make a mistake. We don't, because you've gone bankrupt, it does not mean that you're a huge spendaholic spender. Maybe you were, maybe you went through a phase. It's still okay. You're human. We all make mistakes. Maybe you've had what happened to me and you just had a snowball of events. 
it happens. But there's this process called bankruptcy for a reason. And, you know, credit cards, they make a lot of interest. They make a lot of money. This that this is why we can afford to go through a process called bankruptcy. This is why that system is in place. The government's done it for a reason to help people get a fresh start. And this is why I wanted to do this today is really to help explain my experience through it so people can understand how it truly works from my personal experience. I two years out and I'm a fresh start and I'm back in the real estate. I got a home, got a credit card. I run a business. It's successful. And I could get a loan if I wanted to, but I never know when my health is going to go sideways. So I've chosen to build it on cash. Mm-hmm. So I'm never in that situation again because that really sucked. But um, <laughs> I just, I really hope that somebody out there can hear this story today. That stress, I mean, I've gone through the dying process and it was awful, but financial stress was actually worse than what I experienced like going through the dying process. Financial stress was worse. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. On the phone with us right now is Nathan Logue. Uh, Nathan's been a licensed funeral director since 2004. He completes three generations providing funeral services to local families at Garden Hill Cremation and Family Services in, uh, rather, funeral services in Maple Ridge. Thanks for joining us, Nathan. Thanks for having me. One of the things that I often think about whenever I get a chance to talk to somebody in the in the funeral business is it's such a difficult time for folks. The first phone call is, while it's the beginning of, of looking after something very important, it's often at the worst time possible for the poor person who's calling you on the phone. How do you, how do you deal with that on a regular basis? You know, that, that's a really good question. It, it is a challenge, absolutely. You have to remember that you're usually dealing with people at their most difficult time in life. Um, they've lost a loved one. Usually they don't know what to do unless, of course, they've pre-planned it and things are done in advance, which is becoming more and more regular nowadays. And, yeah, we basically just, uh, we're here to help. We can't express our sympathy too much to them because it's not genuine if you don't know the person. At least that's our opinion. And we just basically say we're here to help and what questions you have. And if they don't have anything, we have a list and we'll get together with them and make sure everything is clear to them and go from there. Cool. Hey, thanks, Nathan. Um, Nathan, just wondering from a, a dollars and cents point of view, what does an average fu- funeral cost look like these days? What should someone be planning for if they just have no idea in the ballpark of costs? If you if you take an average of the scope of everything that we do, the average is roughly about thirty five hundred dollars mm-hmm. in British Columbia. Um, I mean, that varies on so many different things. Um, burial and cremation are the two modes of disposition. So when somebody passes away. In British Columbia, you're either buried in the ground in a casket or you're cremated and uh, your remains are either scattered or buried or kept at home, the flexibility with that. So mm-hmm. um, cost-wise, minimal end is pretty hard to do it for under $2,000 and then that would be like with cremation with no service. Right. Um, if you're looking to have services with a burial, in cemetery plots can range like seven to $15,000 in the lower mainland now. So 
uh, that can double and triple the cost quite quickly. That's so, the cost just for the plot there? That's the right. Seven that's to 15, that's wow. just a burial plot, yeah. And there's no funeral services costs right. on top of that. So, yeah, uh, the cremation rate's over 90%, and a big reason why around here is the cost. And are there costs associated with, with passing on that some people might not be aware of? Yeah, yeah, there's um, things like uh, cemetery plots. Again, some people think that that's included all in the funeral home's costs. They, don't, they aren't aware that a lot of funeral homes aren't connected to cemeteries. Um, some of the bigger corporately owned funeral homes from the states will have private cemeteries on site, but that's generally not the case in most cemeteries in Canada and especially in B.C., um, obituary costs, things like that, legal costs. Um, people don't know what a lawyer is going to cost, and they often, the time of a lawyer can be very expensive or it can be just a quick word of advice, and then they're ready to go. What kind of percentage of people do you deal with, Nathan, who have actually uh, have, a, have a plan or, 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 their, uh, or their loved one has figured out pre-planned this event? It's about 10%, we find, and that number has actually grown quite a bit in the last decade. Um, 15, 20 years ago, it was few and far between that we saw that. People didn't think of those kind of things. People didn't want to think of those kind of things. Um, we've kind of gone out of our way here as a family business in, in town here to, to promote that that's what we do. And it makes things easier for everybody. And we can basically grow our business that way. At the same time, people are assured that their wishes are taken care of when the time comes. Yeah, and, and the person who has passed has actually had a significant say in what they want. I know one of the most difficult things as a family member is trying to figure out, oh, would mom have liked this or would dad have liked that? What should we do? I don't know. He never cared, you know, and that Absolutely. whole consternation that you can get into. Absolutely, that's for sure. We always tell people when we're talking to them, there's two types of phone calls we get. We get phone calls from somebody that says um, mom or dad has passed away or husband or wife has passed away. I have no idea what to do. I'm at a complete loss. What do I do? And then the other one we get is mom or dad has passed away. They pre-planned and pre-paid with you 10 years ago. Uh, When do we come in and sign the paperwork for cremation or arrange the burial date? So it really makes a difference of the original arrangement. If we don't have pre-arrangements is an hour to two hours. If we do have pre-arrangements, it can be five to 20 minutes, depending on how much we talk. So, Now, you're, you're a, a long-time British Columbia operation company, uh, family operation. Is there a significant downside, uh, and I'm sure you know of one, uh, dealing with a, an out-of-province company or an American company that has an operation here in British Columbia? Yeah, the, the, the challenge is dealing with... Um, with companies that can't make executive decisions too quickly without going to a board of directors. Mm. Um, out of province, we generally, uh, I mean, we can deal with anybody, but dealing with another family funeral home, we kind of all have the same feel. And uh, at the end of the day, our name is on the sign, and it's our livelihood of our families. So that uh, when we're supporting a wife and children and, and a spouse or whoever it may be, uh, there's a little bit more livelihood there for us and we just need to make sure that uh, we're taking care of the families and then as that goes over history it takes care of us so um, dealing with the corporate funeral homes are certainly there's lots of good people in the corporate funeral homes and we deal with them all the time it's just it's a different ownership structure really sure so, I get that yeah. what happens when a, a family comes to you and and there's let's say a, a decent sized estate uh, that they're hoping will cover the costs of a of a funeral uh, and all the pieces thereof what happens when that estate doesn't 
isn't able to cover? What kind of what kind of assistance or advice can you give folks? Um, there's there's a couple different avenues. The first would be uh, the Canada Pension Plan death benefit. So if you paid in income tax while you're working uh, towards the federal government, there is a death benefit of up to twenty five hundred dollars, and that totally depends on how long and how much you've paid into it. Um, if that isn't there, as some people are self-employed or don't work at any point, if you had a homemaker or stay-at-home mom and never paid into it, uh, there's no benefit for that. Um, if there's no money in the estate at that point and no family member to step forward for the cost, then we can apply to the Ministry of Social Development and Social Innovation, which is a department within the provincial government that will pay for funeral expenses, and they cover the basic necessity costs for a burial or a cremation. One more uh, a point about the money involved. Um, I had no idea there was a such thing as a, a death benefit and didn't find out about it uh, until we did talk to the person who was responsible for uh, the service and, and services for a family member. And I was quite surprised, and, and they were very knowledgeable about it, and I would think that that would be a, a good clue for people if, if the person you're dealing with uh, is able to tell you, you know, very uh, accurately about that kind of uh, opportunity that's available to families. That's right, yeah, and it's one of our roles as a funeral director is to determine how that's going to play out through the course of the day. At, at the end of the day, we are in business. Um, if we don't make money or find out where our revenue is going to come from when dealing with that family, then we're kind of got ourselves caught in a pickle. So, uh, yeah, it's it's something we try to determine in the original arrangement with somebody, um, kind of how that's going to go. And usually most of the time people will come out and say, I know these can be expensive. How are we going to pay for this? We don't have any money. So that that's usually a tipping point for us to, to go from that point. And just one short question, uh, Nathan, before we wrap up. Is there one thing or two things that people always forget uh, when they come to see you and, and then have to come back or phone you again? Is there a couple of things that we could help them with not to forget this time? Yeah, um, use community resources. One of the newer things in British Columbia are hospices. So they're often connected to a hospital where somebody goes kind of at the end of life. Um, there are hospice societies connected to those, so those are volunteer, basically, uh, therapy people that will help you kind of at the end of life and help families after they've lost a loved one. Um, take advantage of those resources here locally in Maple Ridge. There's a wonderful uh, Ridge Meadows Hospice Society. They're terrific people, um, and they have all kinds of different group sessions to help loved ones at different ages. So if you lose children or a spouse or a brother or sister or a best friend, they'll go through all of those. Um, other resources, just when you, when choosing a funeral home, make sure you ask around. It's always important to get the opinion of somebody that's gone through it before, especially if you haven't. And uh, like a lot of things in life, even in the funeral in the funeral profession, you usually get what you pay for. So that's a big thing we're encouraging and trying to educate the public about now is that there's all kinds of different costs and prices available. Make sure you educate yourself as much as you can in advance and also pre-plan. That's, that's a big thing we tell people now. Pre-plan really helps. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Well, Blair, we talk about you being a licensed insolvency trustee all the time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what that really means to the person who has no idea, no idea, has never heard of that term before. 
Yeah, it's, it's definitely a mouthful. Um, so, you know, three parts to a licensed insolvency trustee. Um, so essentially what happens is, or what happened this year, is the government said for the last, you know, 30 years, uh, we haven't had what's called a licensed insolvency trustee. We were called trustees in bankruptcy, okay? And essentially same types of functions. Nothing, nothing much has changed from what a trustee can do. We can still help you get out of debt. We can help you with a consumer proposal. We can help you with a personal bankruptcy. But what the government thought is that the title of trustee in bankruptcy bankruptcy is too limiting and really created so much fear in the consumer's mind. Nobody wants to consider bankruptcy, definitely not as their first option. People have very negative connotations about a bankruptcy proceeding and how it would go. And for the majority of trustees, ourselves included, bankruptcy is an increasingly small part of what we do. More than two thirds of people that come through the door, we're helping them not go bankrupt. We're helping them do a consumer proposal, restructure their debts, get on with their life without filing a bankruptcy. So for a lot of reasons, this name change made a whole lot of sense. The challenge is that the name was changed, uh, but there's been very little publication about it. So the government's not doing a big public education trend campaign about here's what a licensed insolvency trustee can do for you. So that falls to you and I, Elaine, to explain here's what an LIT can do for you. Exactly. That's what I was just thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Totally. That's what our job is. So uh, restructuring your debts via legislated mechanisms Mm -hmm. like the uh, consumer proposals and personal bankruptcy. Now, what what do you have to go through in order to be the guy that can do this work? Yeah, so a trustee is, it's a relatively small, I like to say elite group of professionals in Canada. It's only a thousand people in Canada have this power. So the government gives a license to an individual as a trustee. And before the government will consider to license you, you need to generally have a university degree. You need to work for a number of years. And then you need to go through a trustee qualification process, which takes between three and five years with multiple exams and finally an oral exam in front of the superintendent of bankruptcy to make sure they know exactly who they're giving a license to. So it's a very difficult designation to get um, and a very limited number of people. Again, about 1,000 in Canada. Okay, now that 1,000, is that just... uh perchance the number of people that are doing this work or is there an actual limit that can practice this work in Uh, there's no limit okay Um, unfortunately and again another reason for this show is this industry of you know debt restructuring helping people turn their debts around it's not always the sexiest industry so i think it's more of an unknown profession that if you know more people were interested in it there'd be more than a thousand out there Um, but no there's no limit there's basically seems to be enough ready to you know meet the market demand but there could be a lot more trustees if people were interested sure and you guys sands and associates has a of offices yeah. in British Columbia, lower mainland alone, mm-hmm. and on the island and uh, in the interior, right? That's right. Yeah. So we've got 15 offices. Uh, we've got, I believe, about eight trustees these days. So we've got the most trustees in BC amongst firms that help consumers. Okay. Um, uh, oh, I forgot what that what I was going to ask you. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, the you talked about it not being the sexiest of businesses or industries, but. If you're watching television, cable television Mm -hmm. these days, of course, we're getting all the influx from south of the border. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole different game that goes on there Mm -hmm. as well, right? Yeah. So that the, we can be influenced by. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the laws for bankruptcies and, and proposals in the U.S. are far more punitive, far more difficult to access. Um, and it's even a totally different role of individual that, that helps you. So um, in the U.S., you need a bankruptcy attorney. And depending on where you travel in the U.S., you'll see bankruptcy attorneys, bankruptcy lawyers advertising like crazy. Yes. Um, in Canada, that doesn't exist. If you need to go into bankruptcy or do a proposal, the government has prohibited lawyers from helping you directly with 
that filing. You have to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. So the role of a trustee doesn't even exist in the U.S. It only exists in Canada. Okay. Um, and the power that a trustee has in Canada is far greater than that in the U.S. Two huge differences are on amounts owing to government for income taxes and for student loans. Trustee in Canada has the power to compromise those amounts, meaning that they can be discharged in a bankruptcy or reduced in a proposal. A trustee or, or a lawyer in the U.S. has no ability to compromise those amounts. So many people that I see, tax debt is a big factor, student loans is a big factor, along with consumer debts. If you're only solving consumer debts but leaving taxes and student loans, you haven't solved the whole problem there. Exactly. So I'm pretty proud that a licensed insolvency trustee in Canada has got the power to solve the entire debt problem. Now there's other groups out there, other businesses or companies out there that might want to uh, approach me to help me with my debt issues. And we're calling them debt, what is it, debt providers, debt service providers. Yeah, there's a number of, of folks, you know, debt consultants would be one, a debt advisor, uh, even a credit counselor. You know, sometimes they even brand themselves a not-for-profit credit counselor or a not-for-profit debt advisor. So there's a bunch of different titles that are out there, and the consumer can understandably be, be confused. Okay, and, and let's talk about the difference between, I mean, you talked about the education that you and mm-hmm. your folks, the eight other, advi- eight other uh, uh, trustees, within Sands and Associates, the designation that they have and the work and education you had to get in order to do that. What's, What's the demands of the other folks that are trying to do this work? Elaine, it's zero. Zero. Lovely. Zero. So I could be one of those people after doing the show. Anybody, <laughs> and, and, any listener out there. No, and, uh, um, it's, sure. it's very shocking, but anybody could hang up a shingle and say, you know, I'm a debt consultant, I'm a debt advisor, I'm here to help you turn things around. There's really no regulation to, to prohibit that type of an activity. And you can imagine, you know, if it's a medical procedure, there's no one saying, hey, I'm the dentist advisor, but I've got no, you know, no qualifications for that. But so essentially, there's no minimum qualifications for anybody acting as an advisor or as a credit counselor. And what's really important that people understand is that sometimes things aren't what they seem. Hmm. So if you are looking at, say, an advertisement or you've been to visit, say, a not-for-profit credit counselor, that doesn't mean they don't charge you any fees. And that doesn't mean they don't make any money. What what happens with many of the not-for-profit credit counselors is they're actually funded 100% or close to 100% by the credit granting community. So they get their money from the banks and they essentially help by collecting the debt for the banks. Wow. So in the province of Ontario, and I I looked this up before our segment today, um, there are credit counselors who actually have to register as collection agents. So the province of Ontario says if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is. The province of BC doesn't do that. So the same credit counselors in BC that can operate without saying, hey, we're collection agents, they have to register as a collection agent in Ontario. Same behavior, but again, the consumer is going to be better informed Ontario of who they're dealing with compared to in BC. Okay, so again, um, a licensed insolvency trustee versus somebody, oh my gosh, that's a scary scenario. Yeah, with a licensed insolvency trustee, we receive no payments from anybody, essentially other than the individual. Right. Um, so we get no money from creditors, and every dollar that's paid to us, it has to be transparent. So I'm mandated by the federal government to have trust accounts that are reconciled every month, audited twice a year, so on and so forth. Every dollar I have, I have to account for, and all of the fees, all the expenses of a trustee are very transparent, and they're very minimal to the individual. It's all based on your income and what you 
can afford. And the government says what you have to pay. Right. So there's no inventing a, a price because we think somebody can afford it or not. There's no opacity to anything. Everything's very transparent. But the conflict that would uh, that would exist in the other scenario mm-hmm. where a credit counselor or a credit company is funded by a credit or a debt yeah. counseling funded by, oh man, that's brutal. Well, and what really gets me and, you know, gets me riled up a little bit is it's all about the information as we've talked about. And as long as consumers have their eyes wide open, they can, you know, make the right choice. So for some people, a credit counseling plan might be a good choice. Um, and a big difference between a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal is in a consumer proposal, I can legally reduce the debts. Exactly. I can reduce them down 30 to 50%, give you protection and all of that. Credit counseling plan, no legal authority to reduce the debts. Often they can freeze the interest. So if you think that your possibilities are, I can have all this debt plus interest, or I can have all this debt with no interest, well, that sounds great. Let's stick with the credit counseling plan. But if they don't inform you about a consumer proposal, you might stop there. And the real kicker that most people are just shocked to know is your credit rating impact is exactly the same. Oh, that is interesting. So paying back 30% of the debt in a proposal versus paying back 100% of the debt in a credit counseling debt management plan, your credits hurt the same, but financially, how much better off are you in a proposal? Significantly better off. Much, much better. Let's talk about cost for a second, because I know people say, now look, what you know, you have to be paid for your work. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out that? How does Sands & Associate figure out uh, how much they get paid when a client walks in the door and says, I've got 50000 dollars in debt. Yeah, so the wonderful thing is the government does all the work for us, so there's no figuring out what we need to get paid, and whatever trustee is chosen to assist in the situation, it could be SANS or it could be any other firm, the fees are exactly the same. So if someone does a consumer proposal, um, let's say they're going to pay back $200 a month, you know, $12,000 over a five-year period on $40,000 of debt, all they pay to get the thing started, to get the proposal started, is the first month's payment. So $200. $200. They make the first month's payment. We send the proposal out to all of their creditors. Their creditors vote back with us. And then in almost every case, 95 to 99% of the time, the proposal gets accepted and the person just keeps making the payments. So there's no upfront 1000 500 No, it's whatever the monthly payment is. You generally make that once and then we see if we've got a deal. We're so confident these proposals almost work that even if someone is, you know, very tight, you know, if their wages have just been garnished the day before they came to see us and it won't happen again, but they don't get paid for two weeks, we'll file a proposal without them making the first month's payment as long as they understand, hey, this is going to work. You're going to have to start paying on it. So just catch it up at some point. Right. But no big upfront costs at all. Uh, compared to somebody who could say this is, you know, it's going to cost you 10 grand and I can get you out of your debt. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And we haven't talked much about the, the unlicensed debt advisors, but that's exactly what they do is they'll pick some number and, you know, it's often around number three to 5,000 bucks and they say, okay, I'm going to be your representative and I'm going to bring all the experts that you need. And one of those experts might be a trustee or it might be somebody else, but you're essentially paying an intermediary with no license, with no regulatory oversight. Um, no basis for the fees to get between you and the trustee who you could have seen for free. Blair Manton, Sands and Associates, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. Uh, for any information or you want to make a, uh, an appointment for a free consultation, 1-800-661-3030 is the number to call. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.